welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 17, States of Consciousness, part two. Waking up to our true nature. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Journey of Integral Recovery, and uh, this is podcast number seventeen. So we're we're moving on here. And my name is John Dupuy, and this is Douglas Prater, uh, who is hello, our producer and co co podcaster, and Doctor Bob Weathers. So Hi, the last yeah. the last conversation we were talking about, you know, we're talking about the different parts of the the Aqua model and the the, the part that we were focusing on were states of consciousness, which have all kinds of things uh, to do with uh, addiction and recovery. And I have found in my teachings and sharing over the years that addicts really get this quite quickly. You know, they're they're all about states of consciousness. So uh, I hope you can relate to this. So Bob, the last time when we closed, you said you wanted to kind of talk about, you know, we didn't have time to quite for you to get into. So if you'd like to pick that up, that's right. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I've been doing a lot of reflecting uh, after our last uh, presentations on the relationship of stages to states. And uh, I just want to introduce this and introduce it more personally and tie it into uh, practice. And so just to say a word about this, about 30 years ago, I did my doctoral dissertation on what was referred to as structural developmental theory. And to translate that, that into English, it was really stage theory. That was really the basis of my dissertation. And it addressed mindfulness meditation uh, from a stages perspective. And one of the theorists, I mean, Ken Wilber was instrumental in that. I mean, I have to start with <laughs> the whole dissertation was rooted. This would be 19, early 1980s Ken Wilber, but... Uh, there's no bad Ken Wilber as far as I'm concerned. It's just really, really rich. He was in a conversation with me and really supported uh, at that time what I was doing, and I'm forever grateful for that. It got, got me through my doctoral degree. Uh, but one of the, the theorists that had a lot of influence uh, on my dissertation was the uh, Swiss uh, uh, research psychologist Jean Piaget. Uh, Piaget is, is uh really kind of the forefather of cognitive psychology and cognitive development in 20th century psychology. And his idea is this, is how we develop from one stage to the next is that that we're identified with one stage and that we begin to experience more and more anomalies at a certain stage where things aren't working. The rivets are beginning to pop. And he says that the transition is always accompanied by his term for it was disequilibration. So basically, you're moving from equilibrium, where you feel the status quo is working for you, to where it begins to work less and less well. And that transition is rarely accompanied by bliss and happiness. It's almost always through the valley of the shadow of death. So if that's about stage development from one to the next, whence cometh states? And I've thought a lot about this and also reflected on this personally over the years, um, gotten clearer about it, really, in our context of our conversations, gentlemen, is that... Uh, and, and it's right to the present for me, is that in my clinical work, as well as in my own personal uh, spiritual practice, is that I find meditation as being a way to be able to hold that disequilibration. And uh, and let me just say a word about that. I think the typical move is when we feel that kind of 
disequilibrium, it manifests as anxiety and dread, and you want to head you want to head the opposite direction. So most of us will stay in a certain level of development our entire lives. I mean, beyond uh, development up through you know high school years into young adulthood, many people stay right where they were for the rest of their life. And so to continue to forge forward in terms of higher and higher levels of development means developing the capacity to manage that level of angst. And this, for me, is one of the the real deep benefits for me of decades now of meditation practice. And I want to add, since I'm talking with you, John, and with you, Doug, is that the, the uh, accompanying the, uh, the additional resources I've gained through uh, I awake tracks that are, they accompany not only, John, you know this, not only my meditation now, but when I'm reading and writing, I'm always listening to I awake. I just basically walk around with it. Uh, the track specifically that I found very useful and, and it's, it's, it's uh, buttressed and added to my meditation practice is uh, the deep delta meditation. I just, I, I, I find that for me, it's, you know, Johnny and I talked about this recently uh, as a musician, as a drummer, it suits me aesthetically. And I've read enough about the information that you've given me about the value of delta waves in terms of uh, th- that brain pattern is that it, it drops me into a place accompanying my meditation where I can begin to tolerate what is otherwise very unpleasant emotion. Psychology actually has a term for that. They call it affect tolerance. It's the capacity to tolerate unpleasant affect. That was really the subject of my dissertation. My dissertation was unpleasant meditative experiences, a structural developmental analysis. And so I was looking at the relationship of how do you manage unpleasant states and not narcotize them, which I've done plenty of with drugs, or avoid them with all of our other addictive props, how do you hold that tension through that valley for the service of growth, for the service of transcendence? And I don't think it's possible if you don't have self-regulation strategies. And for me, that uh, primarily includes my meditation practice accompanied by I Awake tracks. And also, I would add, and it's what you said earlier, John, this is actually what spurred this whole line of thinking. You said, I think it's really hard to move through these states and to develop without others. And so uh, even yesterday in my work at the local treatment center, I was having clients, many of them early in recovery, telling me, what are the two things you need to establish recovery practice? And these are clients saying, Dr. Bob, we need self-regulation. And by this point, they know that that's shorthand for mindfulness practice, daily mindfulness practice. And what else do we need, classic? We need co-regulation. What is co-regulation? Regulation class, and they all tell me it's just what you just said, John. Is how is is that you that um, no seeker is an island that they absolutely need each other, and there's all kinds of ways that we can talk about that. We'll come to that later. I think I just want to uh, distill it down to just saying that for me, the one goes hand in hand. And so we talk about states. I'm going to find some way to manage if I'm seeking higher and higher stages of development. And all the positive that goes with that, I've got to develop the musculature. I love your term, John. You call it grittiness. I've got to develop the grittiness to be able to endure or withstand the slings and arrows of uh, homeostasis, yeah. which wants to keep me at the old in the old status quo. And I, I, I'm a living example of it is that in the absence of substance, <laughs> which I'm committed to that and have been now for the better part of 10 years, absolutely absent for five years, uh, 
two days ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that okay, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna uh, aim for the long term, uh, long term, short term, I can take something that jacks up my dopamine. But as we just discussed in our last podcast, it's a short term solution, right? And that's all it is. If I'm looking for a long term strategy, for me, it's got to include some very very powerful self regulation. Uh, formula and for me that really is meditation coupled with the eye awake track. So I offer that to you, gentlemen, just for any thoughts. I, I'm hoping it resonates or raise, raises questions. Uh, love to share. I'm sharing it personally. Uh, yes, my research was on this all those years ago, but I think I've been personally researching it um, for the last 30 years since I wrote the dissertation. <laughs> I uh, wanted to chime in just real quick and ask if either of you have read um, Ken's. Ken Wilber's newest book, The uh, Future of Religion, which yeah. goes into this in great detail. The uh, I'm working on it. I'm not <laughs> through it. I'm, I'm not Me all too. the way through it yet. Either, Me too. Me too. I, Same, I, got, uh, I got hit on, uh, I was listening to it uh, on audio and I got into the third turning mm -hmm. uh, yesterday. I was like, okay, <laughs> I need to get the book and read this, you know. But anyway, it's, it's awesome. There's a, so much great stuff there. Go ahead. Yeah. It's yeah. exactly what you were talking about, Bob. It's the... Uh, use of states of consciousness to help uh, ascend through the stages of development and how bringing these things together is exactly what's needed to help us continue to grow and evolve and for religions to continue to fill their wonderful role that they have the potential to play in the future as we have continued to learn. It's just brilliant. So uh, that's, yeah. that's good recommended reading for our listeners as well, if you're interested. Perfect. Perfect. You know, and Bob, you were talking about affect tolerance, and I, I, I realized, you know, you did your stuff on stages and your dissertation, but I didn't realize that part of it, which was a key part, and basically that saved my life. When I, um, I don't know, some 11 years ago now, or anyway, it's been a while, I, I started using these binaural tracks because I was trying to find something that would help addicts meditate, basically, in a powerful way, and I went through this huge, big, boom, you know, opening, uh, like in the first week, first couple of days, just I was like, wow, like this is enlightened. This is what everybody's talking about. And I studied transpersonal psychology, so I'm pretty versed in the literature. So I didn't know, I knew I wasn't going psychotic. At least I suspected I wasn't. But anyway, there I was. And then I was going, this is just amazing. And the speck of consciousness, you know, my ego's real. Sorry, Zenny's, but it's true. And if you avoid that, you get know, all kinds of trouble. Got to account for that. But then again, you know, we're, we're, we're there's, just everything. This is, and it's real, and it's what I've always been, am, and always will be, and 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 it's not even something that's governed in time, because time is something that emerges from the big self, you know, which we are. Anyway, all 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 that to say, that prepared me, and I thought, man, I'm just going to walk this blissed out Buddha. It's great, and I kept meditating, and all the stuff, all that had been keeping me clinically depressed, off and on. And the verge of suicide often for years began to come up in my meditation. And because I had this expanded kind of gray state that the, where I could just observe it and the, and the kind of the wisdom voice said, this is going to get you well. So instead of freaking it out and trying, okay, if I'm just happy, expanded and get blissed out or whatever again, just stayed with it and on and on. And I'd go through these releases and, and transmutation. It was all happening in the body. I mean, obviously there were thoughts that emerged, but I learned really quickly that Okay, there's the thoughts. This is what this is about. And sometimes you don't even know it's about. Most times I did. Just, you know, bracket them and stay with the embodied feeling that I started getting well. And it went through the, the it still goes on, but the real dramatic getting through that first level of dealing with my depression lasted for about nine months. 
And it was that being able to tolerate the affect of this despair before that would just freak me out and, you know, take pills, let's go to the doctor, zap my head, do this, do that. And just being into the depth of it was where I found God, basically, yes. and where I found healing. So um, this is different language than what you're yeah. saying, Bob, but very spiritually right. valid. Right, right. Thank you, John. Thank you for sharing. I have yeah. thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. I have a body, but I am not my body. I have feelings, but I am not my feelings. It's uh even if you understand it logically, the experience is just something else entirely and incredibly powerful. And I hope that we can continue to explore that for the duration of this episode. That's, that's a brilliant thought. And, and getting back to, to states in a positive sense. And one of the, when I started, you know, um, learning about, I, I'd studied Ken's early work when I was in grad school back in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. But when I discovered him about 10 years ago, again, in this later work, I was listening to an interview, and I can't remember who who the person was, but he's a French uh, researcher on uh, uh, meditation, you know, using all this brain stuff. And, and, they, and Ken and, and this gentleman were talking about it, and they said that, that you know, you don't meditate to search, to seek states. You know, I mean, and that, you know, we just want to have non-dual bliss and all that stuff, and that's good. I mean, that's part of it, and we need that. We need to contact that deep goodness of the universe to get the, the A values, I think Maslow called it, so that we can be healthy. That's true, but you can't seek it. It kind of has to come by grace. I'm going to think, I'm going to try to do bliss, bliss. You'll just get wrapped up in your head. And you have to let, let whatever emerges. But all the states that you go through in meditation become the building blocks, whether it's going through the darkness and the pain or the anxiety or the boredom or all your, you know, one of the projections about what your meditation should be as opposed to what it is. That's one of the big hangups, you know, you have this, this, this meditation super ego, which is the part of you that you should, you should, you should, you know, well, that's a dumb meditation. It should be this, all, right. all this stuff. And that'll keep you from actually getting there. Uh, that all these various states that you learn to just accept and, and with mindfulness and spaciousness and the observer, the witness, so actually become the building blocks for your higher next higher stage of development and how does that shift happen it i don't think it happens consciously i think it's the universe evolving through us because you can't say you know i'm at this stage i'm orange i don't want to be green i mean it's just not going to work it just begins to emerge organically or, or as part of the process the universe says okay it's time to flip the switch here but um uh, yeah, all, all of those things become, instead of things that we're, we're lusting after or craving or trying to achieve, and which I think Trungpa called spiritual materialism. You know, you want to have these states, oh man, I'm really cool, then you're higher than everybody else, and so the ego wraps around that. Anyway, there's a lot of pitfalls along the way. But John, I have a, kind of two thoughts here. The first is all the different types of meditation, and there are many, many, many of them, and what I have found is that experimenting a little bit is good, but at some point it's important to pick a path and it doesn't necessarily matter so much which one, as long as you pick one and see through it. I read a a very brief article from Seth Godin a couple weeks ago who talked about when you go into say a hotel room or somewhere that you're not familiar with and you turn on the tap looking for hot water. And we all know that it takes a minute for that tap of hot water to heat up. And maybe you think that you switched on the wrong tap. So you go to the other one, turn the other one. And <laughs> now it's, it's still cold. It's still cold. It's not it. It's because you didn't leave the other tap on long enough. But knowing whether to leave the tap on and wait a minute or whether to switch it is an important part of this. And I think that too many of us, uh, spiritual seekers in particular, tend to switch the tap too quickly when we're not seeing what we want 
quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, brilliant. that's a great image. It's a great image. Other other thought that I had is perhaps um, as we as we stick with the practice and start to move through it, maybe you guys could take us on a quick tour of what the different meditative states of conscious are and how we progress through them as we move towards this non-dual opening that we've been talking about. John, do you want to respond to that? Would you like me to take a stab at it? Or? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Or, you know, Doug, you know, you're, you're setting us up to answer a question that you know well, so you might just want to talk about it. <laughs> well, all right. I, I guess uh, we have, we talked about in our last episode, some of the things that we experience very directly in our waking lives, the states of, uh, sadness and joy and anger and all these different things. And these are all identified with what we call the gross waking body, our regular day-to-day experience, as it were. Um, all this stuff, yeah. Yeah, all this stuff. Uh, and that is often what we're trying to change. From there, we move into the subtle level of consciousness, which is one of the first that we experience when we start to develop a meditation practice. And most of us know it as the dream state, if you've ever you know, woken up having remembered really intense dream, or if you are engaged in the practice of lucid dreaming, which we have talked about a little bit, that is an experience of the subtle level of consciousness. Um, from there, we move into uh, the causal level of consciousness, and this is most commonly experienced in deep sleep. But it is also the place that you get to when you work with the deep delta track, which is actually free on our website. Uh, in a rural recovery institute.com and you Good. can get down well, there. Well, that was generous. No, I, <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank um, you. No, you guys check it out. It's, it's an amazing track. Yeah. The, the causal level of consciousness is very hard to describe because there's really no content here. And perhaps, you know, you guys could elucidate on that from there. Uh, and, we move into the witnessing consciousness where you are outside of all this looking in on the experience. You're aware of the things that are going in your head and you get here through mindfulness practice repeated for a long time, this ability to observe from a different place what's going on in reality, what's going on in your mind, what your thoughts and emotions are doing. This is where you start to realize that I have a body, but I am not my body because I am consciousness looking at that body. This is asking the question, I can see all these things going on inside me, so I am not them. So what am I? What is it that's doing the noticing? Yeah. Right. Um, this is witnessing consciousness, or, or it is called Turiya oftentimes. Ken Wilber refers to it as Turiya as well, uh, which means literally the fourth. It's a fourth state of consciousness. And from there, from this witness, we move into the non-dual unity yeah, because in the witness about. state, you still have the witness in what you're witnessing. So there is still a duality there, although it's a hugely transcendent and expanded state of consciousness. And like when you get that, it's like, okay, I'm not my body. Then what the hell am I? And then bing, it's like, whoa, you know, oh, now I remember, you know, and oftentimes, the, you know, the mystics talk about it as being a remembrance, you know, that we've been asleep and then we remember what we've always truly been. And there's kind of like, yeah, it's like, it's not new. It's something deeply known and somehow, somehow forgotten, like you're coming back to it. And then in the, the, the non-dual state and what, what is it in, uh, they call it uh, not causal, but is it non-dual? Is that how? Yeah, non-dual. Yeah. You, unity when, or non-dual? Yeah, unity, right. It's it's Nargajina, who's on the second turning of Buddhism that Ken's talking about, but he was a great, some people refer to him as the um, 
the uh, second Buddha. That's how powerful his teachings were. And he really criticized uh, Buddhism as it was. You know, that you were talking about the painfulness moving from the next stage. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he was right there helping that along. Yeah. And um, basically he said that, you know, there was this, there was this, in early Buddhism, the nirvana and samsara, right? The stuff, the relative world changing, ever, you know, falling apart and going back together again, getting attached to that with suffering. And then you nirvana and there's no attachment and you're just total freedom. And he said, well, there's a little uh, beyond that. You get to the point where there's not samsara and there's not nirvana. There is just that. There is one thing. There is no difference, you know? And in, in a deistic, um, spirituality wise it's all god you realize that you know god is not out there god is there you know it's like uh it does the my um my iMac or my my laptop here have buddha nature well of course it does because <laughs> it all arises in the buddha mind there's nothing that is not that oh it's all god oh jeez what do i do with that you know and that's a really good question what do you do with that because ken said has said on, on various occasions that it's not even more important than the realization is what you do with it. You know, given that, therefore, you know, you know, how do I conduct my affairs, you know, as, as an awakened being and as realizing this. And of course you not only have to wake up to these things, but in, in my experience, you have to stay awake. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. Otherwise it's just a, a powerful state state. And in the early kin, that's, that was his error. And, um, per Ken, that he was identifying these states, uh, meditative states, as stages. And I could go from this and that, you know, da, 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 da. and then he realized that, no, that's not what they were. They're just powerful states that help us to achieve stable states. Changing the state, like the clouds in the sky. Stage, yeah, stages. And so you want to get up there. And, um, yeah, I'll tip uh, it for a minute or two. Let me let me uh, uh, respond back to something you said earlier, if I may, Doug. Uh, I love that image of the tap with the water. That's good. Never heard that before. And uh, um, and I want to tie it into to states. Is that uh, my experience? And I'd be very interested to compare notes with you guys. My experience is both personally as well as working with clients over the years. In fact, it's as recent as this week, where I, um, for example, yesterday led a group, and we begin with a mindfulness of the breath and uh, sensory practice where you focus on different sensations. When I'm working with clients, these are clients uh, really early in recovery from serious addiction, and we do mindfulness practice. I mean, it's part of well, that's how we start our group, is that there's a common complaint. I'll, I'll always ask, how did it go? And a number of people will raise their hands and say they felt really calm for the first time today, that, that, that kind of response. And they'll say, did anybody have unpleasant experiences? And there will always be a couple of people hugely raising their hands because they're, I, I admire them because they're being honest. And the typical response is this. As soon as I focus inside in this kind of mindfulness practice, what I notice is the flood of thoughts, just the, the uh, uh, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, they call it monkey mind. And that actually can be experienced as anxiety producing. And clients will talk about this. It's like, I wasn't aware of the monkey mind. Back to that earlier image of yours, Doug. I wasn't aware of the ripples on the pond reflecting the sky. And now, guess what? Now I'm aware of it. That's not such a good thing. And so we talk into that. I think that that characterizes early meditation practices that these states can serve as an impediment to continuing on. In other words, the water gets warm and then also it starts getting cold again. It's like, what the heck is that? Uh, and, and I think, I think it, you have to 
John, in your terms, I think you have to push through that. I think with more advanced practice moving forward, uh, and this cuts close to my work in the psychological realm over the years, is that with more practice, and John, you actually made reference to this earlier as well, um, is that what will come up is not so much these kind of subliminal uh, you know, thoughts that is, if you just quiet your mind, you're just aware of how much is going on. Is that If you stay with it, you'll drop down to another level figuratively, and that will be where the things that you were talking about earlier, John, the unresolved uh, conflicts, possibly trauma for some individuals, uh, our demons, our shadow, that's where that will come up. And that's another time that the water turns from warm to cold. It's like, wait, 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 <laughs> what is this? In the Zen tradition, they call them makyo. They have these, these, uh, these things come up and they're represented as demons. Is that uh, That's what happens if you de-repress the mind. And meditation is a very powerful way to de-repress. Guess what comes up? The repressed contents that were formerly submerged. Yeah, good, bad, and indifferent, I might, not, I might add. You know, yes. all kinds of things come up. Yes, all kinds of things. And I'll just finish with this, is that if you continue the practice, and I think that that's where a lot of the shadow work comes in. And honestly, for me, over the years, working with clients that are spiritually inclined, many of them uh, engage in a meditative practice. This is what they'll bring in. They'll bring in, Bob, I started meditating and all this unresolved stuff with my husband or my wife or my mom or my dad or whatever. That stuff is coming up and I've got to deal with it because it's stopping me cold in my tracks. I can't continue meditating and ignoring this stuff. I can't bypass it anymore. But if people will move through that and that takes whatever work. John, you talked about nine months of just wrestling with the, with the demons. Um, if people will stick with that, I think it opens into another realm, even a deeper realm, which gets at what you guys are talking about. It reminds me in a psychological frame, the way that uh, Maslow's hierarchy at the very end of his life, he included a dimension beyond self-actualization. He called it self-transcendence. Or self-realization too. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the contemporary psychologist, uh, 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 Csikszentmihalyi, who's written so much about the flow state, I think of this very similarly. By the, the way, way, you're one of the few people on the planet who can correctly pronounce his last name. What an honor you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was a close call. What he, what he talks about is what gets revealed for me in a meditative state. And I, 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 I'm blessed with a meditative state. Oftentimes when I meditate... But also, and I'm talking about a more profound kind of openness, the way you all are talking about it, I also experience it, and I'm talking to two musicians, I experience it when I drum, and, and uh, they have a long relationship to that state of flow, um, of a non-dual presence when I drum. It's just, uh, I'm not conscious of what I'm drumming, I'm very attuned to what's going on, and it's a little bit like watching a sunset. As soon as I step outside of it and try to describe the notes I'm playing, poof, it evaporates. And my sense of it with meditation is that we'll achieve these non-dual or witnessing profound states. And the tricky part, and Wilbur wrote about this early on, the tricky part is not to immediately reflexively repress that. You know, when I get into a flow state, I want to I take a picture of it. Well, guess what? It ain't there. <laughs> and I think it's like that with these deeper meditative states. And I'm not talking theoretically. Personally, for me, these, these states of, of just openness, what you all were just describing so beautifully, they're... Uh, uh, they're given as grace, and the moment I grasp for them and want to uh, take a permanent residence, they they skitter away very quickly. And it's always been that way for me, and so I, I feel like that's another level. Uh, Wilbur 
refer to this phenomenon as the repressed emergent unconscious. The idea that we have an emerging kind of leading edge of our conscious awareness that's accessible only with discipline, only with, 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 with uh, practice. It's not to say that it doesn't come to us at a sunset, but if you want to cultivate more, uh, more, uh, access, more accessibility of that, it really does require discipline. Having said that, once having accessed that, or better, once having been accessed by that, it can be a real challenge not to repress it. And one of the easiest ways to repress it is just to name it, describe it, categorize it. Uh, when I was, I'll share this last image. When I was a little boy, I was in third grade. I had the science project that was to, um, uh, I was going to create a box. It was a, this black velvet box with butterflies in it with their Latin names. My dad was a doctor, so he had chloroform. And so I would capture butterflies in my little net, bring it in there, and kill the butterflies. And I'll never forget this. This is a very early warning of how it was going to go later for me in my life around what we're talking about. I would pin the butterfly to the little black velvet, put the Latin name under that. So now they're named, they're pinned, they're dead. And uh, I got so thoroughly depressed, you guys. I got so thoroughly depressed. It was like these beautiful butterflies. And how we can do that to ourselves around these states, they're evanescent. They're not meant to be owned or claimed. They're graced as far as I'm concerned. I think we can make ourselves more available to them, but they're given, not uh, not taken. Does that make sense, you guys? Yeah. So it's just a way to think about different states of meditative yeah. uh, uh, deepening and then what accompanies those in the spirit of talking about uh, unpleasant experiences or anxiety or disequilibration. What accompanies those, is the water gets cold and we have to find a way to move through the cold water to where it gets warm again. Yeah. You know, Ken, Ken says that, um, that states are basically free. They come and they go and stuff, mm-hmm. but stages you got to buy. In other yeah. words, it takes hard work. And, and I love that. And you were, yeah. you were talking about Maslow, yeah. you know, who was the father of humanistic psychology or one of the leaders and also of transpersonal. Um, that, that what we're talking about in the journey of integral recovery, talking about self-actualization, meaning like the old army ads, be all you can be, you know, really be the best version of yourself. But it's also a sense of self-realization, awakening your, your, your ground of being, your central nature, uh, non-duality, God consciousness, Buddha nature, however you want to, you know, there's many traditions. And uh, at the higher levels, they're, they're talking about the same basic thing. Uh, basic thing that, that what is and and that's that's pretty exciting you know because I mean anything any culture um, without a, a path to transcendence that is achievable by a lot of us is it, just going to die you know and we didn't know that we were in the west we became so you know outward focused and even in the east they lost a lot of their their transcendence stuff you know they, they became old and moldy because you know, we kept evolving. We know a lot of things now. And so we know so much more. In the last 20 years, we've learned so much about so much. But all, you know, all the ancient wisdom and traditions together with our current knowledge and, you know, 70, 80 years of AA. And I mean, all of this stuff. And now that we can put it together and we're, we're, we're talking about A or some of the things that went before us, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, uh, disqualifying them or putting them down. But we're talking about, and this is just in the spirit of Ken's new book, we're talking about adding to. You know, adding the new essential basis, you know, the understanding of states and stages and practice and the quadrants and, and, and all of these things. It just, it just, uh, and all, everything we're talking about, obviously we're talking about recovery and spiritual awakening, you know, showing up, growing up, waking up, cleaning up, whatever order we put that in. And, but this could be applied to any field of endeavor. It's not just this, you know, so you can learn this basic model 
and you could apply it to anything you're working on in your life or anything you're called to do. Uh, it's, it's really extraordinary. Bob, I love your image of the butterflies. <laughs> um, oh my God. Yeah. That was a hard lesson. You guys, that was a hard lesson. It's hard. It's, it's difficult and oftentimes dangerous trying to describe the ineffable, um, the ineffable. I had an experience. This is maybe 13, 14 years ago. I was, uh, living in Austin and San Marcos and uh, was with a friend of mine with whom I shared a lot of interesting experiences and was a significant step towards the deepening of my spiritual path, though I was not necessarily prepared for it at the time. But one day in particular, we're there in San Marcos and we crossed a bridge to a little island there in the middle of the river and had the random idea to see what it felt like down in the water and jump into the river there with our clothes on. And in this moment of wild freedom, leapt from the edge. And the moment I hit the cold water, I had this flash, an opening, a satori, something clicked. And I experienced something that I had never seen, felt, experienced before. And it was just incredible. It changed my life. And I could only describe it as profound. Now, Several years later, in talking to a relative, I tried to describe this experience and the way it changed me and ended up not being able to do it and sort of making a fool of myself in my process. It made me hurt and question myself and question the value of my experience and my self-worth and all of this. There's a real danger in trying to catch those butterflies and, and can cause you to really question it. So I... You know, shied away from it for a while. It was a real um, hindrance in my continued evolution on the spiritual path. Because when you tried to explain what was going on, people thought you were nuts. Was that was? Yeah, because it, I struggled to find a way to really describe what had happened and what this moment felt like. It was ineffable. I, I couldn't explain. I didn't have the language for it. I don't know that there is appropriate language for it, but um, made me question what I had experienced in a way that I shouldn't because many years later now with continued meditation practice and some increased clarity, I have a better understanding of what had happened. But there are people who, at least in my experience, will try to detract you. People who aren't ready to hear it, people aren't open to those kind of experiences or who haven't understood what it was that happened when you had an opening. Question your sanity, as it were. <laughs> Yeah. And well, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, which is a really interesting or less they'll turn and rend you. It's a really powerful metaphor. Not saying these people are pigs, but I think, you know, don't don't reveal your kind of deeper truth or deeper stuff that people aren't ready for it because they just won't hear it. And they may get hostile. You know, I've got a I've got a story, you guys. I haven't thought about this in years. I think you'll both appreciate it. You may be familiar with it. It's a it's kind of a legendary story ascribed to uh, the composer Beethoven. And uh, as it was in those days, uh, composers made their living uh, being uh, uh, having patrons, you know, support them uh, in their work. And so Lud uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, he had a, a very wealthy baron who was his patron and, and commissioned him to write a, a sonata, a, a piano uh, a solo sonata. And so Beethoven did that, at the end of which... Uh, the Baron called him into his court with the piano and, and said, play it for me. So Beethoven played the entire sonata. He was an incredible pianist. And uh, 
And upon the completion of that, the patron looked at him and said, that's beautiful, Ludwig, <laughs> but, but what does it mean? And what Beethoven's response was, he played the sonata exactly one more time, played it one more time, slammed the piano closed and walked out and never came back. <laughs> that was his response. <laughs> which may lead us into types, which is our next subject. Uh, don't say that to a four. They, they'll slam the piano down and they'll walk out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I set it up that way. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> you know, and I was interested, you know, I was interested in getting back to you, Doug, and your experience when you hit the water, you know, it's like I, I was blessed by that same river, you know, a lot, the San Marcos River, an amazing river. And, you know, I mean, you're here with supportive, loving people. Do you think you can F the ineffable and screw the inscrutable here that maybe kind of... <laughs> oh. <laughs> <sighs> wow. <laughs> I mean, because it's such a vivid image, I can imagine you sit in the water, all of a sudden the universe blows up. And yeah, just wham, you know? Opened wide up, and I was right there, fully present, and, and the feeling of the water was a part of me, and the shot, I, was very, I was very awake. I was immediately lucid, but I wasn't thinking about it. I was very, very present, and one with everything that was happening in that moment. There was nothing outside of that moment. There was no past. There was no future. There was no difference between me and the water and my thoughts. It just all suddenly was. And I don't know what else to, I don't know how else I can describe it. That, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm totally, yeah, it wasn't a thought. This was just the, it. There. yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? You know, you remind me, listening to you, thank you, Doug, for being willing to share with us. You remind me, uh, even in the descriptions you used, and I think it gives me a new appreciation. I mentioned him earlier, and John, you compliment, complimented me on the pronunciation of his name. He's got one of these uh, Slavic names that doesn't have any vowels in it. <laughs> I don't know how many, how many C's and Z's and S's can you put in a row? But the title of his book and of his theory is easy to remember. Miyayi Chiksun Miyayi is the author, and he's written a series of books uh, that have been deeply influential. His books on creativity have really been formative for me. But the, the theory is based, and he's the one who named it. He just simply called it Flow, F-L-O-W. And he lists eight characteristics of flow that would be eight characteristics of describing the ineffable including one of the characteristics is its ineffability, but it, uh, the sense of being out of time, the sense of being uh, an absence of a sense of self, a sense of this experience is an end in and of itself. There's, it's not a means to something else, and so on it goes. And uh, I, I love what he did. Chiksamiya uh, 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 was at uh, the University of Chicago for years, and he did an international study, you guys. It's very cool. He hooked people up to a little beeper on their belt, and he would, and this was thousands of subjects, he would beat them at various times randomly during the day and ask for them to write down how they were, what they were feeling right at that moment. And he compiled all of this and, and then sifted through all the records and came up with this is that when people talk about being happy, it's never about what we would think. It's not about my new car or aren't I famous or this kind of thing. It was what you just talked about, Doug. 
And so, and, and, and the paradox of it is that what makes people happy is least easily described. But he went about the process of trying to stick close to the experience, compiling this through the day after day with subject after subject, and then, and then came up with this theory of flow. And so what he calls the basis of happiness is this kind of ineffable, indescribable, absolutely universal experience. It didn't matter what culture, he did it across multiple right. societies. It's really extraordinary. And I believe that for me it ties directly into what we're talking about in terms of states, is that these higher states, um, we all get, I love the way that um, uh, Wilbur talks about this, we can get a peek into them, P-E-A, a P-E-E-K. We can, we can peek into a peak P-E-A-K experience and that's given to us just, just graciously, I mean, just purely by grace. And then, John, as you know, and you too, Doug, is that you can actually cultivate a psyche that's more and more fertile and open to this possibility. So the experiences that we have of jumping off of bridges into water or, uh, or, or, or with music, you can cultivate that through meditation, other means where you're no longer peeking at it. You're actually beginning to have more and more of that experience kind of seasoning your day-to-day, but I love the way that he talks about flow, and I'd recommend that to our readers. It's a very accessible book. It's not a technical book at all, and it it roots itself in really kind of speaking the unspeakable, Um, but he does it in a poetic enough way. He doesn't doesn't depart. He doesn't reduce it down. He doesn't turn it into a butterfly that's been pinned to a black velvet mat. He really stays closely to it, and it absolutely matches my experience over the years, including with meditation. John, you asked me, how does it go? Uh, You know, we talked about this with the eye awake tracks and meditation. The other morning I shared with you, I meditated for two hours with the deep delta going, and the place I go into, it is self-reinforcing. I'm going nowhere, and that's the nowhere where I want to live. Yeah. And, and, and it opens up. It's buoyed for sure by the I awake, for me, the deep delta tracks. And then just years and years of practicing. Like you said, Doug, I stick with the same practice now for 35 years. I just you know, I found something, and I just keep doing it, and it keeps you know, getting more and more nuanced. But it accesses this state that Chiksamini is talking about, and it's universally accessible. There's not a one of us on the planet that can't access or be accessed by flow. You know, and I, I, um, I, I, I just was in, did a trip to California recently. I got uh, a, a chance to hang out with Arjuna Arda, who <laughs> is the author of the um, Translucent Revolution and on the uh, Spiritual Tech Talks uh, Season 2. Uh, 2.0 season two. I was interviewing. He was talking about the new book, and he sent me the um, he sent me the first eight chapters. It's not published yet, but he talked about this kind of cycle, mm-hmm. and it starts up at, at you know at twelve o'clock at being just emptiness. And we're talking about the emptiness of meditation, where just no thought, nothing. You know, not body, not mind. Um, um, mind, mind, body drop. This is in koan. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just the pure isness of it. And then it moves into from emptiness into the flow state, which is at, at say at three o'clock, which is at birthing, you know, that, that incredible, you know, revelation, I've got to do this and that, and it all comes together. And then it moves down into uh, six o'clock, which is where you really got to put it together. You got to take the vision, you know, that, that emerge from emptiness into the flow and just hammer it down, do all the work, you know, get the podcast going, figure out how to get the dog on microphone to work and just, you know, all the myriad things it takes to do a project. And then after that, you know, you move into 
Uh, and first, I was kind of dubious of this part, but you get into this part where you, you know, you're just not uncomfortable in your own skin anymore. And the last thing you did looks kind of stupid. And, you know, you start self-criticizing. The ego comes up and all the fertilizer of our own neuroses come, you know, which is good stuff. And you got to hang out that, that for a while. And hopefully you're beginning to do it with, with mindfulness because all this stuff, instead of saying, uh, a friend said, don't say, oh, shit, say, oh, fertilizer. You know, because when, you know, it's, it's, it's there to help us grow. And I was really experiencing the last few days. It's like, you know, just being sick and, and, you know, just, yeah. I said, Oh God, this is what Arjuna was talking about. And then from there you begin to move back to, you know, 12 o'clock emptiness. And then it starts going over. So as you become mindful of these interior process and uh, perhaps cycles of creativity and, and creation, then we don't have to freak out. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I want to be in the flow state forever. No, 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 no. That's just that's just like, you know, loving Dawn and want everything to be done. That's not what's going on. So you learn to you begin to have this expanded awareness and wisdom. And, you know, it begins you go through these different cycles and it goes back to you. Uh, what you were saying, Bob, about about moving from these different stages, right? From say, uh, you know, blue fundamentalist, uh, mythical thinking into modernistic scientist, scientific, you know, uh, individualistic freedom, blah, blah, blah. And then you move into green, which is again, communitarian, you know, all beings, um, and this stuff. And it's quite painful sometimes, especially the, I think it's even more painful the earlier stages you are. However, I think once you get to kind of the second tier thing, just this big leap from from uh, from green and the, and the postmodernism into this integral thing that brings it all together and shows how it all fits, that the transitions become less painful and less discordant because you're you're you realize you you know this is evolution how it goes and you've kind of learned and you go well here we go again you know yeah, and that sounds fine, right you that know? sounds right yeah i bet you're right about that i like that don't, uh, john i've never thought of that before that makes it stands to reason doesn't it is that as we get as we become more and more integrative of the whole then the changes are less and less um in psychology we say ego dystonic they're yeah. not. They're not dissonant with your sense of self because your self is, sense of self is already so expansive and inclusive. Yeah, yeah I like that a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you become less and less likely as you start to integrate that to run from it or cover it up yeah. by switching off to a substance and yeah. Yeah. realize the wholeness unfolding before you is far better than anything you could have done artificially with a drug. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we, we, I don't think we get perfect in the sense of uh, ego projection in this life. I never met a perfect human being ever, 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 ever. Anybody claims that anyway, that they're pulling a con or they're really deluded, but you know, and, and all of our stuff, you know, we do release it, but there are always impressions that remain. There's always a story there that we can, you know, reaccess and go back there and understand it. But, but, you know, the, and one of the things that's so important, we're talking about in, in stage and stages and stage development and addiction as we get into the stages of recovery, right, which yeah. you could say, same thing, spiritual stages. I mean, all these things are, are parallel, if not the same thing. Um, I know we're winding down here, yeah. but it's, it's synchronistic, John, that you had mentioned stages of recovery. Just this morning when I awoke, I went to our Journal of a Journey of Integral Recovery uh, Facebook uh, uh the community, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the blog site or whatever the term is for it. And that was exactly the topic that you talked about that. So you have this engagement from people that are listening to this material, reading your book, interacting with this material, uh, working integral life practice, 
talking about stages of recovery. And I'd love the conversation. I guess this is a, an indirect sales job. I really want to encourage <laughs> listeners to get involved because it's like taking this, moving it into a community context and actually digging deeper and deeper and deeper with this material. And today's topic, interestingly, John, was stages of recovery. And this will lead us into to next week's thing. And I remember I was talking about that, that as you move into these things, you know, you transcend and include. In other words, you, yeah. you, you know, all your battles with alcohol and drugs don't go away. All my battles with depression or whatever, they're still there. They're part of me, but they're no longer the controlling subject. Yeah. And, and Keegan said that each, each, every time you advance a level, the, the, the subject, the I-ness of the last level becomes an object of yes. the, the preceding level. So the addict self is no longer controlling you saying that yeah. you have a stable, you know, all, all the necessary lines of development. Yes. Yes. And, and I think, I think when that happens that uh, we become more accepting of ourselves yes. uh, as imperfect beings and we can laugh about ourselves more and we can be more forgiving and humble and loving of others because we realize that, you know, Hey, I, you know, at, at 60 years old, you know, it's like, John's probably going to be John, you know, <laughs> And that's just the way it is, you know. And uh, let's see how we can we can line that up so that it does some good in the world, you know. And, and uh, we a, love you. We love you, John. We love yeah. you, John, just as you are. <laughs> yeah. And so you begin to love, and then it helps. Of course, it's the the big. I think the big job is self forgiveness for a lot of us, and then we can move on to to forgiving others in a real way, which is a whole nother. Well, you've talked about it brilliantly before, Bob. So thank you so much, you guys. We love you. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, God bless. See you next time. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.